Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. A little more concern in the province of Alberta, where they have been evacuated, gone back on a knife's edge, having a bit of PTSD and starting this all so very early. There's been destruction and there has been a lot of fear. Slav Kornick is joining us live, global news reporter. Slav, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for joining us, Slab. Uh, you're on your way to Edson, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we're going to Edson. They're going to have uh, a media availability. They'll be speaking to the media here in about an hour and a half or so. So uh, we're going to get an update on the situation uh, in Edson and Yellowhead County here in a shortly, about an hour and a half or so. They need an update. Edson has just been such a focal point, haven't they? Evacuated and then allowed to come back, but then told that they may flee. They've been back and forth and back and forth, and some of them going to Hinton, which certainly knows this story firsthand. They've got to be at their wits' end in Edson. Yeah, they certainly have. Um, Yeah, they were able to return home on Monday. Then we saw the uh, town of Edson. Uh, tweeted yesterday that um, there's the potential for a local state of emergency to be um, reissued. Um, we hopefully will get an update on that. I'm sure we will here once we uh, talk to officials uh, um, here shortly. But yeah, they've been kind of back and forth. Residents uh, were sent to Hinton, somewhere in Jasper. Um, a couple days ago, we spoke to um, uh, residents in a couple other communities in Yellowhead County who were hit really hard by the wildfire. Um, we spoke to one resident who had his home destroyed, and he just moved into his oh, home God. five days uh, prior no. to the wildfire, if you can believe wow. it. And it was his retirement home, and then five days later, oh. the wildfire hit. His home was completely destroyed. Mm. Um, Yellowhead County said uh, that at least 25 homes in the county itself have been destroyed. Edson itself, as far as we know, um, wasn't directly impacted by the wildfire, but there is still a danger. There's um, several wildfires just south of the town that are still um, said to be out of control. So certainly um, the situation, you know, they're not out of the situation right now. And as you mentioned before, um, before our interview here, that uh, the, the heat's kind of rising here in Alberta and the wind's starting to pick up again. So, um, yeah, people kind of uh, nervous about what uh, what can happen next. You got it. What an incredible story of the fellow you talked to. Just moved into a home five days, and then the fire hits. I can't imagine what that would do to your psyche. Just me. Half of them must feel lucky. The other half must say, why me? Yeah, really sad stories. I mean, we were just driving down the highway here, and there was um, about five homes or so, and four of them looked, you know, untouched by a fire and then one of the homes right in the middle was completely destroyed so um you know some of it is just it's there's a lot of sad stories we've spoken to residents not just in yellowhood county but other areas of the province obviously you have had uh homes destroyed and um you know just every time you speak to anybody who's been impacted by this wildfire it always kind of touches you even as a reporter to um, kind of speak to them and see the impact uh, the wildfires have had on them I can imagine. See, how is the air quality? We talked to the meteorologist about that. 
And he was a little discouraging on how that could clear up immediately as well. He said it was pretty intense. Can you feel it, Slav? Um, where we are, it's honestly where we are. We're on Highway 16 here. We're mm-hmm. uh, east of Edson, and it's it's okay here. We're obviously mm-hmm. in Edmonton as well, and um, in Edmonton, um, it's not really noticeable. Um, so at the moment, in the areas we're at, it's not too bad. I was in Drayton Valley about two days ago, and two, as of two days ago, the situation there looked better. I was there the previous week, where mm-hmm. um, just shortly after the fire hit, and I mean it was it was bad at that point the previous week. Um, so at the moment, it's I would say at least where we are, um, it's it's not too bad, but. Um, as we mentioned, it, it could change quite quickly here with uh, with the weather conditions warming up, and, and you know, especially with the wind, um, that could really create uh, you know create a worse situation. So right now, it's not too bad, at least where we are. Slav, I I want to ask you. You know, you were mentioning um, the man who lost his house and others, and then giving us a picture there of houses that were still standing, and then one that was completely destroyed. And we know this isn't their first rodeo, if we can pull that out. What do you think the psyche is of people right now? I'm trying to put myself in in their shoes, and it's must be fear at the moment. But knowing what happened in the past, and kind of wondering if this is a little bit of the new normal. Are you are you sensing that from people? Well, I think a lot of people, especially in towns like Edson, where there's still a lot of uncertainty, it's just people are tense. Um, they're nervous. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what can happen next. Um, especially with the forecast um, being what it is, we're getting temperatures here in the mid uh, mid to upper 20s, even maybe the 30s. So I think that has a lot of people concerned. I think um, other people have expressed some frustration in certain parts of the province, feeling like um, they should be allowed to return home. Um, obviously, a lot of people have been able to return uh, home over the last few days when we did get a little bit of moisture here and the weather conditions did cool down. But I think it's probably a mix of emotions between kind of nervous nervousness, um, frustration. Um, I think that would be a, a fair way to describe a lot of people who have been impacted by the wildfire, and of course those who have been directly impacted. It's you know just devastation and uncertainty about their future and what's next, that sort of thing. You know, we love to look in a mirror, don't we, all of us? Every time there's an election in Canada in a province where I was looking for signs, oh, what does it mean? Are we are we moving to the right? Are we moving to the left? Who are we getting kicked out? What's what's working? And all sorts of election teams just focusing on what turned the election. I know over a year ago when the election happened in Nova Scotia, it was a big deal across the country because it was a bomb went off. And it wasn't supposed to be that way. And, you know, it was about housing and it was about health care, housing, two H's. And the whole country paid attention. Now, of course, we're looking at Alberta and seeing what's working, what's changing mind. Plus, we have these wildfires. We have a crisis on our hands. And that really affects uh, the issues. It certainly goes to the top of the the chain here. We have some new polling out. We're going to talk about the polling and why the Alberta election is doing whatever it's doing right now. Lori Williams is joining us, a political scientist with Mount Royal University. Lori, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Lynn. 
All right, just uh, let's talk about the tone and the feel here a little bit. And we have a provincial election campaign, which is interesting enough in Alberta. We have somebody who had the job before and wants it back. And that was an explosion when Rachel Notley won. And then we have a forest fire situation at the same time. And so the issues and the governance is kind of under more scrutiny here. Lori, how, how is that affecting as you watch things? How's it affecting what we're seeing right now, in your opinion? I, I don't know that I see a, a, an obvious or dramatic impact yet. But of course, uh, the wildfires are unfortunately looking like they're going to get worse. And it is going to be a bit of a a test of of managing during an election. If if uh, if the management goes well, that could be an advantage to Danielle Smith because, of course, she's the one who has her, her finger on the pulse of what the government is doing about the the wildfires. Um, but a, a foot set set wrong could could certainly hurt her. And and uh, so, on the one hand, we've got the possibility that could just fill in the narrative of a, of a continuing series of errors that has a negative effect, or it could reverse some of the, the uh, momentum of those errors. Okay, we're talking about the momentum. Uh, polls, we know, are snapshots in time, but we talk about them anyway, and I just wanted to throw it out there that we both realize that. Laurie, we're seeing in some of the latest polling that the independents may be swinging a little bit to the left. What do you make of these latest numbers? Well, I, again, it's early, and there's still quite a lot that could happen during the election campaign. Um We've seen a number of campaigns. I'll take 2012 as an example, where it looked like people were moving in one direction. And then um, in, the, in the last day or two prior to the election, even as people were walking into the polling booth, they were making the decision to move in a different direction. Um, having said that, though, um, there are a lot of people that are, that are expressing concern. Uh, and some of that concern is centering around competence. And you know, there's some recent uh, data that's suggesting that people have more faith in Rachel Notley to deal with natural disasters than they do in, in Danielle Smith. So that's the kind of thing that can sort of begin to shift the momentum in, in the direction of the of the NDP. And I think the appeal that Rachel Notley is making mm-hmm. uh, to conservative voters and the fact that a number of prominent conservatives are distancing themselves from from uh, Danielle Smith and saying she's not a conservative and even so going so far as uh, Jeremy Farkas uh, saying that she's she and her her uh, the candidate she's running are dangerous um, I think that might be having some effect but again it, it there's lots that could happen to, that could turn it a, a, a different direction well let's face it I mean when the shots are coming from in the house it's never good during an election no. campaign let's dwell on that for a little bit Lori and I know Ken Bosenkubel coming out with mm-hmm. a, a very critical piece as well again from within your own party whoa that is kind of the last thing you want well during it, a it is coming from within in one sense but there's also a split within or amongst conservatives let's say that that's the split that was was meant to be papered over by the United Conservative Party. And it's pretty clear that that hasn't succeeded. And so we've got a lot of sort of more moderate conservatives, um, the folks who who generally have voted conservative historically, um, who are now looking at whether this party represents their values and their aspirations for the future. And increasingly, increasingly the answer to that question from those who have those more moderate conservatives, increasingly the answer is, no, this isn't the party. 
On the other hand, you've got folks like Take Back Alberta, former Wild Rose mm-hmm. folks. Yeah, these are the people who are trying to push the party in the direction that they think it should be going in. Um, and we're seeing that they've got increased influence in Alberta. And uh, and again, some are raising alarm bells about that. And others are saying, well, it's moving conservatism in, in a new direction, which they think it should be going in. It I'm is. Struck it is. By the number of people, mm-hmm. the number of people I'm seeing saying that they, they can't bring themselves to vote for this conservative party. Yeah, and they're being vocal about it, mm-hmm. very, very vocal about it. And, uh, you know, it's something that we've seen here, though. Let's talk a little bit more about Take Back Alberta, because mm-hmm. they are the other extreme, as you say that, and that word's so loaded now, I just mean it in the original in the original meaning of the word. But there is a pressure, and it is deep and hard. We've seen it, and I'm just going to talk about the elephant in the room here. We see this in the United States of America, Lori. Is there an emulation happening? Yeah, I think there is a lot. I mean, we've seen it in Daniel Smith expressing admiration for uh, uh, governors in uh, in the United States, like Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, she clearly lines up with them on on a number of issues, and and again, those issues don't line up with with the conservatism that has been most influential in, in Alberta historically. Um, but we're also seeing. Um, you know, for example, in some of these these videos out associated with David Parker, uh, who's the leader of the Take Back Alberta movement, he's mm-hmm. claiming credit for getting rid of Jason Kenney for installing uh, mm-hmm. uh, Danielle Smith, and he's also claiming that um, things like uh, uh, the NDP or the left are are anti-human, and that human beings are merely carbon to be destroyed, uh, and that women ought not to work but rather should have babies. Like, not the sort of thing that's this likely to appeal to a, a moderate conservative. Um, you look at the Take Back Alberta website, they want an Alberta pension, yeah. an Alberta police force. These are not things, again, mm-hmm. that polling shows that mo- most Albertans are in favor of. So the more the Take Back Alberta um, policies or agenda are known and their power is appreciated, I think it's it's uh, causing people, as I mentioned before, like like Jeremy Fark is saying, that, uh, that it's actually dangerous. Yeah, and and that is, is certainly going to hit people as they decide how they're going to vote. What's it doing? Is it blowing up the party system there? Because there's there's a battle within the party, and it's a big one. Mm-hmm. It is no small thing. Is this what's it doing to the conservative party and their messaging? It's pretty tough to get a message out because you, clearly, Lori, don't you have to pick a lane if both of these things are quite vocal? Daniel Smith would have to pick where she is on that. Right. And she's trying not to. She's trying to appeal yeah. to different people. And this is something the Progressive Conservative Party did for decades, was they had a big tent party that included a number of different uh, values and principles and so forth, and sort of moved left and right to where the majority of Albertans were. Now you've seen, since the Wild Rose sort of splintered off uh, on the right, um, that there are really deep divisions. Some of these folks fought against one another when they were separate parties. Jason Kenney managed to bring them together, but it wasn't a happy alliance. And it's not just Wild Rose, former Wild Rose and former PC divisions. There are divisions between libertarians and social conservatives. Um, you know, the, the lines of or the, of the fractures, if you like, within the party are actually numerous, and it, it makes it a huge challenge for anybody to, to effectively lead, because what you tend to see happening, as we saw with Jason Kenney, 
um, any move that you you made <laughs> would annoy one faction or another within the party and even with the broader electorate, which makes it pretty difficult to govern. How fascinating, Lori. Have you ever seen anything like this? You know, as a country, we've been really focusing on what we call polarization. It could be tribalism with a million words that we can use. But here, you know, as you've just laid out and we're discussing, we're seeing it be used as a weapon in the real time of an election. And we are seeing the dilemma this puts in a leader, but yet at the same time, Laurie, we've had things, can we call them gaffes or blasts from the past? Daniel Smith saying, oh, that was when I was a talk show host. That's what talk show hosts do, may I say, as uh, as a talk show host. <laughs> no, they don't. This is uh, not something every talk show host does because she said, oh, you kind of, I think it was one time she said, sometimes you sort of, sort of make things up. Laurie, how is that affecting it here? Is you know, was we all knew during the leadership campaign that you have to say one thing, but then you got to deal in reality. Reality's here right now, right? Well, and even in the leadership campaign, she was appealing to those those sort of take back yes. Alberta folks, the ones that she mm-hmm. knew could could sort of push her over the top to victory. Remember, she won just barely over fifty percent on the seventh, sixth ballot. Um, and, uh, you know, so her, her support um, with Albertans in general was relatively low. She's tried to keep the support of those take-back Alberta folks because they'll turn on her if she doesn't. Uh, they've done it to Jason Kenney, and they're threatening, I think, to do it to her as well. Um, but then to try to reach out to more moderate conservatives has proven to be, would have been a challenge anyway. But then you've got this, you know, regular release of another video or audio mm-hmm. uh, recording of, of something that she said that's highly controversial. Um, you know, for example, she said a number of controversial things about healthcare, and she's got three panels. They're going to advise her on what to do with the healthcare system, and they aren't going to report until after the election. It's a pretty tough combination to present to voters and say, you know, trust me, it's not, I didn't mean what I said before. Uh, trust me, I, I, I do support public health care, and I'll tell you how I'll do that after the election. That, that makes it a pretty tall order. I know. A few things are being punted past the election, and clearly that's a symptom, Lori. Maybe because if you weigh in, you're going to lose. You know, as politicians who are watching this, this is all we've been looking at Pierre Polyev. Is the same Mm -hmm. thing going to be a challenge? You know, he had to really move over there to get the gig. He got the gig, and now advisors have to be saying, you know, you, you need to add. It's about addition, and so you need to appeal to these people. What lessons do you think are there for other conservative leaders or other leaders who are trying to straddle the fence? Well, to some degree, the dynamics nationally are different than they are here mm-hmm. in Alberta, but, but some of the same uh, challenges exist. You've got uh, a merged conservative party with one wing of that party uh, really fed up with not, not getting what they want, uh, not willing to sort of go along and, and compromise, really sort of trying to push on principles that they think are important and essential for their support. And it's difficult to see how you can hold that support and, and, and appeal to a broad enough uh, sector of the electorate to actually win. Um, Daniel Smith seems to be thinking that all she needs to do is get a few seats in Calgary and pick up those 41, or a good proportion of the 41 rural, rural Alberta seats, and, and that's all she needs. And, of course, that's got folks 
in some of the smaller municipalities, even um, the rural so-called municipalities, municipal districts uh, that that are worried about what that's going to mean um, for them. I don't know if the strategy ultimately is going to work, but the path to victory, because of the number of rural seats, is a little easier for uh, for Daniel Smith than it is for Rachel Notley. All right. So this is, you know, she did try to, that's how she got the votes, as you've just explained. But now it's a referendum on her leadership here. There's an opening, isn't there, for handling this wildfire crisis that Mm -hmm. could make people see things in a different way. It looks to me like it's, I I just talked about those two doors. There may be another door there. It's called leadership in a crisis. Yep, absolutely. Because I would say the biggest issue for most people is healthcare. The second most important is affordability, and and the third is leadership. And you can talk about all the things you're going to do, but you've got to you've got to inspire trust and 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 confidence in your ability to actually accomplish those things. And that's been a real problem for Danielle Smith up until this point. It's possible she could turn uh, a few folks around if she is effective in dealing with the wildfire. Um, or wildfires, frankly. Um, so, I mean, as I say, there's room for for things to shift in in uh, in her direction potentially. But we don't have a lot of examples of people who are trying to do that kind of leadership in the course of an election. And so that delicate balance of trying to effectively lead in a crisis without looking like you're you're uh, playing for votes, because if it looks like it's opportunistic, uh, that can really offend a lot of folks. It is. You have to strike the right tone. I I referenced Katrina a lot. It was one of the first times we just went, wow, one thing, some pictures can do you in, Lori, in these circumstances, can't it? I mean, just a picture. No, no, there's no question. It's, it's, uh, it it can be very, very delicate and tricky. Um, And so far, it looks like uh, Danielle Smith's advisors are just trying to keep her, uh, out of mm-hmm. trouble, keep her from mm-hmm. being in situations where she, she says or does something that creates more trouble for her. Um, so it's 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 not the sort of thing she has demonstrated the, the kinds of instincts that are necessary to pull off. But on the other hand, if she's just in uh, you know briefings about what's happening with the wildfire and photo ops with folks that are struggling, um, then potentially it's it's something that she can she can na- navigate successfully. But again, the question becomes whether that's going to be what people vote on the basis of or one of these other issues. Because for people that support Danielle Smith, mm-hmm. um, these or, or the agenda that she's putting forward, her leadership isn't the issue. And we're actually hearing that some some of her uh, her ground people are saying when they're going doors, don't don't uh, don't worry, um, vote for us and we'll get rid of Danielle Smith after after the election. Um, and I think some people mm. are maybe being persuaded by that. It's it, it, this is really an odd election in that we've got prominent conservatives recommending that you not vote conservative, and people knocking on doors in in areas like Calgary uh, saying and that that Daniel. Yeah, don't vote. worry, we'll we'll get rid of her, but later on. 
the latest edition of the Chinese election interference story. I've kind of given up thinking when this is going to end because it is not going to be for a long time. And all of it is still in play. We've got CSIS. We've forgotten the search for who this this informant is. And it's drip, drip, drip. A lot of it coming out from the Globe and Mail. And we learned this week as well that there are more. Wait, there's more. CSIS now creating and asking for meetings with other Canadian politicians, and they're not all for from one party here. And they're telling them that their name came up. And remember, uh, the Prime Minister last week said um, one of the things he pledged as this thing was blowing up was that CSIS had to do that from now on. It's happening. One of them is the former leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole. Plus, we have the expelled diplomat. We're learning more about that right now. What we're learning in the politics of it. Lori Goldstein joining me live, columnist with the Toronto Sun. Happy Saturday, Lori. It's hard to keep up with it, isn't it? It is. It really is. What a long, strange trip we've been on, as the song says. Lori, what do you make of this new information? I mean, somebody told us from the beginning, and then we heard from Michael Chong and the plot thick, and now they're meeting with other politicians, including the former leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole. And we know Aaron O'Toole saying he thought Chinese election interference uh, didn't do him any favors in the last election. Is there a meaning to all this? Just, I, I guess, the layers of it and how deep it is and how deep those roots go. Yeah, I think the the problem is, and, and you, you know, you just mentioned it, we're not getting this information in any coordinated way. Um, you know, it's not as if the government has decided uh, on its own initiative that um, we ha- no, they have to be um, clearer with Canadians about the threat. What's happening is that the government is basically responding to media leaks, primarily by the Globe and Mail and also uh, Global News, who have anonymous sources in the intelligence and security um, uh, infrastructure who say something, and then the government and then the government reacts to it. And so the, I think one of the concerns that we, sh- we all should have is that the story is so confusing. And, and it, there is a new revelation almost every you know, second or third day, because none of this, the government never intended that we would know any of this stuff. And, and so to me, then it becomes, well, then what is the point of intelligence gathering? Um, what is the point of having all this information? And to use one example, that Beijing is basically targeting um, uh, not members of parliament in Canada, but not just members of parliament. Um, uh, you know, there's now information this is going on at every level of government, provincial, municipal, mm-hmm. indigenous, um, public servants, anyone who can influence Canadian policy with regard to, in this case, um, China. Are being tar- you know, like are being targeted through not just threats, as we heard with Michael Chong, but but bribery, blackmail, yeah. intimidation, mm-hmm. harassment. Well, if all this was going on, why weren't we told about it? Um, uh, and what don't we know? That's the other thing, because because we we hear all these individual stories, but. But none of those are the complete story because it's basically a response to leaks. And as you said, the prime minister's first uh, concern was 
who is leaking this information because they're breaking the law. And that's true. Um, I'd be more concerned about, yes, but on the whole, we're now understanding that the vast majority of these leaks are accurate. You know, not all of them may have been accurately reported, but, but that, that this is an, an enormous problem. And, and of course, not just China. I, I mean, we also know that Russia interferes. And we also know yeah. that there are other states that interfere. But yeah, overall, yeah. what concerns me is basically, um, in addition to the deluge of information we're getting, uh, is why didn't we know any of this before? Um, what yeah. was the government doing? What does, what does CSIS do? What, do? what are all these agencies doing if they just gather stuff? And for, specifically, they gather stuff about threats to members of parliament and then don't tell them. Well, then... What was the point of gathering the information? And Laurie, you know, as as we look at this, and it's just the thickness of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad, and then we learned about Michael Chong, and then we got into details, and we learned about you know it was municipally, I believe, in Vancouver, and yeah. and then provincially in Ontario. There is a sense, let's feel, say, and this isn't just a feeling, but this is a deduction that uh, seems to me you got a pretty good chance of. Who knows what we're about to find out here? And can the rapporteur do anything? Laurie, come on. I mean, we still have to wait weeks before we find out if there's going to be an inquiry. Then we have to go through the inquiry. Uh, this is going to be tedious. We will have, this, you know, sleuthing will have figured it out by then. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, to me, it is, it's absurd that we're still waiting for a decision from um, David Johnson, who is that. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointed to advise him on whether we need a public inquiry. I mean, we certainly need something. Um, uh, I, was, I was reading a story where, where CMHC says, and I guess they were trying to explain why they weren't notifying people, well, these weren't threats of physical violence. And you're sort of like, well, okay, I know. wait a minute. Yeah. You can intimidate all kinds of people in other ways than through the threat of physical violence, you can threaten them. You can say to um, uh, you can say to someone who they have tar- or, or someone who targeted, they could say, "You want you want a visa so that your um, you can visit your dying mother in China." You're not going to get one, or you can do the reverse. We're not going to let your your uh, relatives from China um, um, come to Canada, or your relatives in China are going to lose their their livelihood. None of that is threatening physical violence, but 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 who cares? I mean, mm-hmm. Michael Chong, who who you know the the, the one the first report came out mm-hmm. that he was mm-hmm. intimidated by this, or or was being you know the plot was to intimidate him or threaten his family, and now they've they've expelled that one Democrat, that one diplomat. Well, terrific, but Michael Chong has said, and and I mean, like I and others have been have been writing about this and researching it, Chong himself has said what happened to him is going on all the time. The only reason it became a public issue now is that he's an MP. But but he has said that the government has been advised repeatedly that Canadians of Chinese origin who speak out against China's human rights abuses in Canada, everything from uh, the genocide of the Uyghurs, uh, Muslims, uh, to the crackdown of uh, democracy in Hong Kong, to the threats against Taiwan by um, China, to the to the um, uh, treatment of the Falun Gong. Anyone in Canada who's a member of the Chinese community here 
who um, talks out about that, talks about that and criticizes China, they're subject to these these same tactics. Um, yeah. And that, you know what, what is the what is the primary job of the government of Canada? It's to keep us safe. I know. And if you don't, we don't know about this stuff. We don't even know the decisions people have made. It's left to their individual decision. I'm, I'm, you're probably like me. I'm putting myself in their shoes. It hit with a bang. It certainly did with me as we saw. And I remember when it flashed on, on my phone that a OPP officer had been killed. Two others were injured at a shooting in Burgot, Ontario. And then we thought of the others. One, two, three, four. And then we understand that we're not exaggerating it, that there have been an increase, certainly in Canada so far. And then I'm looking at a couple of articles written last year talking about the killing of police officers. And then I'm wondering, like you are probably, what's going on here? Why? Then we hear the word, it looks like an ambush. And that that perhaps those officers had been lured. Who would do such a thing? And we wondered that about a, a killing several months ago as well. And then we've been talking about what's happening in our transit and why are why is it unsafe to get on a subway in Toronto? Why people feel that way? And a, a boy getting stabbed, and then in Vancouver, somebody getting stabbed in a in a coffee shop, and then it gets turned on police officers who are a symbolic of the institution of law enforcement there to protect us. So we want to talk about it. We want to go there. Uh, joining us is Gregory Brown, who was assistant professor of criminal justice with the School of Science, Health and Criminal Justice, State University of New York. He's worked in criminal intelligence in a liaison capacity with the uh, Criminal Intelligence Service in on. Ontario there, so has an eye on America, eye here on Canada. Gregory Brown, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us live today. My pleasure, Arlene. Is it a trend, Gregory? I mean, you have experience, you're watching things in America. We follow the news in America very closely here. We're seeing it, and certainly there is what appears to be a disturbing pattern. What are you seeing? Sadly, I, I hate to, to suggest, but yeah, it seems to be a trend. Certainly these uh, murders of police officers over the last 12 months in Canada are unprecedented. Um, these, these things have happened historically um, from time to time. I mean, I, I recall attending a funeral in Quebec, Ontario for an officer that was ambushed. Uh, a person called 911, and when the officer showed up, they murdered them. Um, as part of my work with the Ottawa Police Service mm-hmm. as a homicide detective some years ago, I investigated the ambush murder of one of our officers, uh, Eric Chapnick. Um, so they have happened sporadically from time to time, but um, but nothing like this uh, on this widespread uh, scale over the last 12 months in Canada. So many aspects of this, but uh, why don't we deal with the, the why? And, you know, I tied it in with our look on violence and what's going on because we're asking the same questions. It's got to be, I mean, is it post-pandemic? Is there something in the water? Is there something? Are we tearing down institutions? Is there something we're saying or not saying here? What do you make of it, the why? I, you know, we all don't have the perfect answer, but right. I think we can draw some conclusions, Gregory. Sure. But, I mean, since the incident happened in Bourget, uh, 
just just outside of Ottawa, an area I'm quite familiar with. Um, I've been reflecting on this. It's need to come up with, with a reason. Of course, I, I don't have an empirically validated reason, but but I suspect there's two things at play. Um, I suspect one would be the the complete uh, breakdown of the mental health system in Ontario and certainly in jurisdictions across Canada and, and the United States. Community mental health is almost non-existent. Um, I have friends that are clinical psychologists whose wait lists are in almost double-digit number of years, not months or, or days. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a huge void in terms of providing mental health services. I, I'm going to—I'm not a clinical psychologist. My my PhD was in uh, sociology, and, and I teach law and legal studies, but. Uh, I think we can apply common sense to, to think that somebody that lies in wait and ambushes a police officer maybe isn't exactly playing with the full deck. It's likely there's some pretty severe underlying mental health challenges that the experience, that the individual's experiencing. And, and this is just rampant, and, and it's going untreated in the community. It's going untreated within correctional facilities. Inmates within custodial facilities are not receiving mental health treatment. And of course, those are terrible environments. And when individuals are released back into the community, their mental health challenges are even worse than when they went in, exacerbated by some of the things you alluded to in the post-pandemic world. And I I suspect the second thing that we're looking at is possibly related to the kind of transition in the public attitude towards police. And I'm using the the word public in a broad Mm -hmm. sense. I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting that everyone shares the same perspective on policing, but policing uh, in the last decade or so has changed considerably in terms of public opinion about police. The policing is now viewed with quite a bit of suspicion and uh, we're demanding much more accountability from police. And sadly, we have some very graphic episodes of police misconduct that are fueling the fire with, with the public attitude. Um, just last week, some of some of my students were having a discussion, and one of them mentioned this terminology, ACAB, which is an acronym that stands for All Cops Are Bastards. And the, the question wow. was asked, you know, is this legitimate? Can we brand, in Canada, we have approximately 65,000 police officers, brand every single one of them with that label? And of course, my response was, that's ludicrous. But this is prevalent. If you see demonstrations after a, a police incident, um, different organizations uphold this this kind of idea that um, police officers are, are not to be respected, uh, that they're evil people. And I can't help but think that that might contribute, not being able to enter the mind of, of the perpetrator, but that this pervasive sort of societal attitude towards police might have something to do with this. It is it's so complicated, but I think everybody, I can just, everything you were saying is so true. You know, there's a sense when we started demanding, and I say we, the proverbial, we, we the people, a little bit more accountability from police officers, and you've given us such a balanced account there. We have seen stuff that we didn't like. And how do we fix it? I mean, is that part of it? Is Are we going through a phase here? You know, was it better? I was just thinking the other day, you know, when I was brought up as a little girl, you were told you're in trouble, you run to the police, you run to the police. And it's really hard to listen. There are people in communities who don't feel that way. So, Gregory, is this? Uh, are we transitioning into reality, or are we, you know, falling down a hole here? Sure. Well, your question was, how do we fix it? It's actually not that complicated. Uh, a lot of people that that 
are you know reluctant to see it fixed because it's a very expensive uh, ticket item. Um, don't don't want to hear that. They want to make it convoluted and it's far too complex to address. But it's actually very straightforward. Um, we have to select the right individuals to be police officers in our society. That's step one. That requires extensive, far more extensive than what takes place today. Screening. We have the tools to to screen out uh, people that should not do this job. It's a very hard job. Not everyone can do this job. It's a very rare type of individual that can do the job properly. And we need to identify and attract those kind of people. And the second component is training. Uh, Police officers receive an incredibly small amount of training for the kind of mm-hmm. responsibility that the job entails. And so yeah. I've been calling for years. I, you know, I do speeches for the chiefs of police. I talk to police leaders all the time and I'm on them all the time about increasing training. It, it will probably shock your listeners to know that in Ontario, in terms of use of force, which is areas where police typically get into a lot of trouble, we see troubling videos, accounts of, of police using force in an inappropriate way. Officers in Ontario might receive eight hours of use of force training once per wow. year. And that that training has been watered down over the years because of, you know, you can't have half of the workforce off with dislocated shoulders and sprained wrists and broken noses. So the training is, is very mild and limited, uh, both in scope and in time. And that has to change dramatically. Uh, officers need significantly, exponentially, much more training than what they experience now. And that's how you're going to rehabilitate the image of police. When you see police behaving consistently in a highly professional way, we don't have these troubling use of force videos on the news that animate the public. And that's the remedy. It's, it's very straightforward, but it's very, very, very expensive. It's so tough to talk about this because in it, it's it's one thing of people who are say they're victims of bad policing and that's hard. It's hard for us not to look away and then to see that something funny is going on and police officers are being targeted. I'm going to ask you about those feelings. How tough it is for you? You know, you got into this, into this business, you got into the career of being someone in policing and law and order. How are you feeling about all the things that you've just opened up to us about? Well, it's troubling. Um, you know, police officers serve the community. And when one is, uh, uh, hopefully it's just one. I, I understand the second officer is, you know, fighting for his mm-hmm. his feet. Um, you know, when they're targeted explicitly because of, of their occupation, um, yeah, that's disturbing. I, I have most of my friends are are, are police officers, and, and they're reeling. It's it's really disturbing, and officers are feeling very much uh, literally under the gun. Um, it's, it's a pervasive sadness. It's also an elevated level of uh, fear. And, uh, you know, officers are, are, are concerned. They're scared. They're, there is something happening that's very troubling, and they're not immune to that. Um, and so the level of vigilance, I'm sure, has escalated. Uh, officers are very visible by, by intention. They, they wear uniforms that have in big, bold letters on the back of their body armor, police. They drive vehicles that we all can see that, that are police cars, and so they're they're essentially sitting targets. Uh, the, the poor officer that went in to have a lunch break 
uh, in Peel Region, I believe, uh, yes. was was assassinated in a coffee shop, mm-hmm. uh, picking up his lunch because he was wearing a, a police uniform. So, um, what what my concern is is that this trajectory is going to continue, not only with the the targeting of police officers, but uh, sadly, in response, uh, when police vigilance is is elevated, that's sometimes where tragic mistakes or accidents can take place. An officer can. With the, with the heightened level of uh, vigilance, can misperceive uh, a citizen's actions as threatening, and then we can have a tragic circumstance uh, in that regard as well. It's true, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, you know, the human beings and something primitive takes over, and you say, am I at risk? And they are. <laughs> they are, so they're going to clearly look at it in a different way. Do you know that's affecting officers? What are they saying? Well, in my inbox this morning uh, yeah. from the, the police uh, labor organization that uh, that used to represent me when I was a serving police officer, there's uh, emails about uh, officers' mental health uh, from the president of the Canadian Police Association, Tom Stamatakis. It was something on Twitter in my feed this morning uh, talking about, you know, if you're struggling, reach out, there's support available and so on and so forth. So this is really impacting on on officers' mental health. It's coming on the heels of what we spoke about before the break, this, this shift in society uh, towards policing being something that's not only uh, limited uh, in terms of citizen respect, and, I, and I'm not saying all mm-hmm. citizens feel that way, but a significant and growing number of citizens, um, you know, it's, it's compounding that, that issue. Uh, I was doing another interview in another venue the other day, uh, the other day, and I was talking about, you know, police officers historically, you know, I'm talking 20, 30 years ago, when there was a police officer in someone's family, that was considered to be something that, that parents were, and siblings were proud of. You know, my son is okay. a police officer. That was something oh, yeah. that was to be celebrated. It was noble. Mm-hmm. It was it was not something to be ashamed of. I have friends that are retired police officers now that when they're asked in social environments, you know, oh, you're retired. What did you do for a living? Rather than proudly saying, you know, I was a police officer, they say, oh, I worked for the city. Or I was in government or something really? like that because there's a significant it. shift in in the perception yeah. of police. It is true, and some of the officers I talked to said, you know, I, I was asking some, what do you think it would take to get better people or more qualified people, more committed people, and say, make it, make all these things important, make it important because they aren't feeling that way. You know, it's it's a bit depressing the situation here and it's coming from all sides i do you think it's going to get worse it's going to be on the rise right now well i don't know uh, you know i'm mm-hmm. a social scientist so i operate in the empirical world so i don't often go on a limb and give opinions without uh, an empirical foundation i don't see the trajectory changing uh, all on its own uh, i think there are things we can do and as i mentioned earlier making sure that we hire the right people, incentivizing the right people. Um, just earlier today, I was speaking with someone about a, a fact that's little known, and it, it'll probably surprise some some of your listeners, but policing is one of the few occupations where every single person earns the same salary. So every constable in each police service at Queen's Canada earns the same salary. They can earn a little bit more if they go to court more often or they yeah. work some overtime. But essentially, it's the same. In the, in the other world that I work in, in the academic world, um, as is reported every year in the, the Sunshine List in, in Ontario, it's quite a famous <laughs> thing. Every professor earns 
totally different salary, and it's based on merit and how much training you have, how much experience. And so I think if we're talking about incentivizing the police to to do better, uh, that could be a financial reward for getting additional training. When we talk about mental health response in the community and police being not the right people to respond to mental health crisis, what about the novel idea of the training police officers to be psychologists or social workers? When I supervised a platoon of officers in downtown Ottawa, I had some brilliant young officers that were very highly educated, very motivated. What about sending officers uh, off to university to earn a master of social work degree or become yeah. a psychologist so they can respond I, better? I, to that, yeah, that is a fresh and certainly a wonderful idea, in my opinion, actually. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.